man, I've just been thinking about thankfulness for the last few weeks. And uh, as we're moving into this Thanksgiving season, uh, I have so much to be thankful for. And uh, I don't know about you, but I just, uh, I was driving on a campus. This has happened several times over the last six weeks. I'll pull in and I'll see that monument sign that says Restoration Church. And my first thought is, man, this church didn't even exist seven years ago. You know, and I, I just found myself being really, really grateful and thankful. And so ultimately, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful, you know, I've said for a long time, I'm really never surprised when people come. I'm almost always surprised when they come back. And so uh, thank you that you keep coming back. And, and I'm just so grateful for what God is doing at Restoration and all the stories of life change that we continue to hear. Um, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for my family. Um, my daughter, her husband, and our seven-month-old grandson flew in yesterday. And so we'll have all three kids here for the next seven days. And so it'll be great to hang out with them. And um, I'm, just, I'm just a grateful dude right now. And so I, I don't know about you, maybe you're at a point in your life where you're having trouble finding something to be grateful for. Um, as far as of Jesus, uh, even if there's nothing physically that you can find to be grateful for, you can be grateful that you're still alive and breathing, yes, right? If you're here this morning and you're alive and breathing, uh, some of you need to remind your face, um, but, uh, but, but that's an exciting thing that you have been given the opportunity to be here this morning. And, and that is a gift from God in and of itself. And so I believe God has something for all of us today. Um, but I was driving around the Woodlands, Montgomery area yesterday, super congested, lots of traffic. Um, there are way too many people that live like in this area. Has anybody experienced that? Like, like I feel like I'm gonna lose my Jesus at the corner of 1488 and 2978. You know, so please, Holy Spirit, come quickly, but uh, I was on my way to get my daughter at the airport, so I'm headed down 1488, and they had one lane shut down right before we got to 45, so of course that backs it up for a half mile, and so um, you're one of two people in this world. You either wait to the last second and force your way over. How many of you are that guy? More than raise your hand, uh, and, 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 uh, and then... Or you're the other person that just kind of realizes it and gets in line a little further back. I am usually the former, but yesterday I chose to be the latter. And so I got in, you know, got in line early to just kind of be a good soldier. And uh, as, as, as we're moving along, you know, other people need to get in, right? And so, of course, I'm just like slowing down and letting people in. And uh, many people give you a little wave. It's not too much to ask, right? But then there are those that don't that feel like it is their right to get in front of you. And, and uh, does anybody like get incensed like I do? Like I've literally just given you my life. I've given you my place in line, the least you can do. How much does this cost you? I mean, it's nothing. And yet I find myself just so offended, you know? I wanna speed up and like bump them from behind or speed around them and get in front of them and go, how do you feel now, right? So that just gives you a little insight into my life. I'm, I wish I were more spiritual. But uh, at, at the end of the day, who's the most wrong in that scenario? Is it the person who didn't acknowledge my benevolence or my conditional response? 
thank you. <laughs> hey, Sheila. I got a sign for you in the corner. Yeah, okay. <laughs> thank you. Sheila, these are really rhetorical questions, but. <laughs> Y'all don't know Sheila. She's gonna talk back the entire message. Yeah. In fact, if I can't finish, Sheila, you're up. Okay. Whew. Okay. So, do I only respond in a godly way as long as I get my way? Do you find yourself that as long as the planets align and God does exactly what I need him to do, then I'm good. I will live with a thankful heart, God, as long as you dot, dot, dot. Um, when I think about Jesus, I just wonder how often he figuratively sits in traffic, lets others in, provides safe passage for other, heals, provides, and gets completely ignored on the other side with not a simple wave. How often do you want something from Jesus and then he provides it and then you take it as if you deserved it in the first place and just move on? Man, so just keeping it real, uh, the American church, the most entitled group of people in the world right, what we think we deserve, and uh, we come by it honestly because it's the American way, right? We, we, we really live with a sense of entitlement that we think we deserve so much, and then when it doesn't go the way that we want it to, um, we're like a petulant child. And so here's the ultimate question that I want you to be thinking about this morning. Do you want Jesus or only want what Jesus can do for you? Do you want Jesus or only what Jesus can do for you? Those sound similar, but they couldn't be more different. Because I would say that most of us, we would love to say, man, I just want Jesus. But the product of our life is, I want what Jesus can do for me. And every time he doesn't do for me what I think he should do, I check out. And so that's what I want us to chase this morning. As we think about what it means to live a life of Thanksgiving, I want us to look and a story of a man who was healed by Jesus and he showed his thankfulness and the response of Jesus back to him as a result. Luke chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, turn there. And this is a story of 10 lepers who were healed. And we're gonna see what the implications are of the nine and of the one. So let me read it to you and then we'll point out a few things. Uh, starting at verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So do you get the flow of the story? 10 get healed, nine go on their way. One goes back to think and worship Jesus and Jesus 
says your faith has made you well. So let's, let's see what is really going on here. So uh, verse 11, he's on his way to Jerusalem and he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. So he's finished up his ministry in Galilee. So uh, remember his public ministry only lasted three years. And so most of his ministry, when you read the Gospels, happened up in the region of Galilee. Uh, If you've ever been to Israel, if you've never been, you need to go. It's incredible. The Bible literally comes to life. Um, But around the Sea of Galilee, he traveled with his disciples, healing the sick. He's in and out of villages. and, And you can read all about it in the Gospels. Well, when he was through with his ministry in Galilee, he starts heading down to Jerusalem where he's ultimately gonna be tried, convicted, crucified. And so that's where he's headed. And it says that he was going along the border of Galilee and Samaria. So uh, let me make sure that we all understand Samaritans were hated by Jews. Um, They were known as half-breeds. So they were interracially marrying, marrying, and so uh, Jews were not allowed to do that. And so they were bringing in the riffraff in the eyes of the Jews. So they were really known as unclean people. And so they were really looked down upon. And so if you were a Jew and you were traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem, you would go around Samaria to make sure that you didn't get caught up in there. Now we know that Jesus actually had an affinity for Samaritans. Remember John chapter four? that he's headed up to Galilee and it said now he had to go through Samaria. And do you remember why he had to go through Samaria? He had an appointment with a Samaritan woman by a well in the middle of the day. And do you remember that story, the story of, uh, of Jesus and the woman at the well that he has this powerful, transformative conversation with her where he he listens to all of her religious excuses why she can't follow the Messiah. And then he reads her mail and tells her everything about her life. She is transformed in that moment. She goes back to her village. The entire village comes out and are transformed forever. So Jesus was kind of changing the narrative when it came to how Jews were supposed to interact with Samaritans. Uh, In Luke 10, just a few chapters back, he told a parable. It's the parable of the good Samaritan. Say it with me, Samaritan. Yeah, the the good Samaritan, if you remember that story, this dude's beaten up and left for dead and a couple of very religious people passed on the other side of the road so they didn't have to deal with him. But then who was the hero of the story? The Samaritan, he goes and he binds up in wounds. He puts him on his donkey and takes him into town. He shells out money and says, take care of this guy and I'll be back. And when I come back through, I'll pay any more money for whatever it takes to make him well. And they were outraged by this story. How in the world could a Samaritan be the hero of the story? So Jesus held the Samaritans in a different place than his Jewish heritage would be told to hold them. Why? Well, the Jews were looking for an exclusive Messiah. Remember, their idea of a Messiah was a great military leader, the next David who would come and overthrow the Roman government, would would get back on the throne uh, of David and they would reign in prosperity over that region. Jesus was this ragamuffin dude that was just going from village to village healing people. 
So it just really didn't compute to them. He can't be the Messiah because he doesn't look or act like the Messiah. They wanted an exclusive Messiah, but Jesus was constantly showing them that he came for the world, for the world. Remember, we talked about this last week, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We've heard that preached in, in churches so many times for God so loved, insert your name here, right? That's a great thought, but that's not the point. If you were the only person in the world, Jesus still would have died for you. Great sentiment. But again, when have you ever been or will you ever be the only person in the world? It's just kind of dumb. It's just not a, it's not a, it's not a great thought because in reality, the minute we buy into that, it causes us to look inward. We get to join God's plan and what he's doing in the world. And the Jews did not see that. They were not interested in allowing anyone into their exclusive country club of a nation. Even in their oppression, they were still looking inward. Could be an indictment on the church in America, you think? Okay, so it says, as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, calling out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. So he enters this border village. We don't know what the name of the village is, but there are 10 guys with leprosy. Now, leprosy was a very common disease at that time. Uh, it still exists today, but, but not nearly. Uh, it probably would have been almost in pandemic proportion at that time. Lots of people in that culture developed leprosy and there was no cure for it. So you would break out in boils all over your body. It would discolor your skin. Uh, it would disfigure your face. And so if you got leprosy, everyone knew it. And it was understood to be highly contagious. And so you would have to keep yourself at a distance. In fact, if you had leprosy, you would stand outside the village and you would call out as people would pass by, unclean, unclean. That was your identity. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having a disease where there was no known cure and no one to this point had ever been healed of leprosy? And so for the rest of your life, you were identified with your affliction and you would stand outside the village calling yourself unclean so that people wouldn't get near you. And so here are these 10 people. Um, I, I, I believe it was probably nine Jews and one Samaritan, could have been half and half. It doesn't really say, but we get some insight as we move through the story uh, that it's probably mostly Jews, but there are Samaritans mixed in. So they had come together under the banner of their affliction. They're no longer worried about uh, this, this racial inequity, uh, the infighting. They just know, hey, I'm messed up, you're messed up. We're gonna be messed up together. And so they're standing together and they clearly knew who Jesus was because when they saw Jesus, they had heard the stories. And so they call out and they say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. They were desperate for what Jesus could do for them. So what does it mean to be desperate? What is desperation? Desperation. 
I would say that they might, that might be the number one characteristic that Jesus desires from us, to live in a place of desperation that Jesus, I cannot do it without you. If you don't intervene, man, I cannot figure it out. It's why the spread of Christianity is happening all over the world and the church is dying in the US because we don't have a perceived need, right? We're pretty self-sufficient. You know, we, we, we've got our houses and, and at least two cars, one per spouse. You may throw in an extra little roadster for the weekend and we've got all of our stuff and, and we don't really have a perceived need for God until things go south. So we're only desperate when we get in a situation that we can't figure out. And yet Jesus desires that we live in a state of desperation, joyful desperation, right? Jesus this is all about you, not about me. And then we live in a place that like, Jesus, I wanna live from you, not for you. I don't wanna take a step without you because I know that your way is the best way. Yes. And these guys were definitely desperate. So look at what happens. This is so interesting. When Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. What? Like, these guys are crying out, Jesus, save us, have mercy on us, come heal us. And Jesus' response is, hey, go show yourself to the priest. It doesn't say that he healed them. It doesn't even say that he promised to heal them. So how much faith do you have to have to just from that statement, go show yourself to the priest, to turn and walk toward the priest, not knowing what the outcome would be. How much faith do you have to have? Well, the question is, how bad do you want it? They knew that he was the master. They knew that he was one who could heal. And so in obedience, as soon as he said go, they went. So did they think that the priests were gonna heal them? Maybe. Not that they ever had before. It had never happened. Uh, they were willing to try anything and they clearly knew Jesus by his reputation. And here's what's cool. What does it say? As they were moving in obedience, as they went, they were what? Cleansed. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine just every step as they're walking? I don't know how far they had to go. I mean, there's a synagogue in the village, so there's a priest there somewhere. But can you imagine every step they looked at like, dude, your nose isn't jacked up anymore. Man, look, the stuff's going away. The boils are going down. Can you imagine the conversations that are taking place among these 10 with every step they take, they are being healed. How cool must that have been? I mean, they probably went from a walk to a jog, to a sprint. They can't wait to get to the priest to show them something that had never happened in their culture before. They were moving in obedience. And because they did what Jesus told them to do, he healed them. Yes. So one thought here, um, so often we have a prerequisite by which we'll follow Jesus. So maybe you have a challenge in your life and Jesus wants to provide a solution for you, but first he wants to teach you to be obedient. And here's the problem. We are not obedient people. 
We are not naturally obedient. We're impatient. So let me just say, I'm impatient. And I have a plan. This is the way, God, that I need you to provide. And so God says, that's great, but here's what I want to do. I need you to walk in obedience, not knowing how it's going to work out. Are you willing to do whatever I ask you to do? So ask yourself the question, if you're being honest, are you willing to do whatever God asks you to do? I think for most of us, we'd say, "Eh, within reason, (laughs) right? And then we'll explain away all the reasons why, well, that just doesn't really fit my plan or I don't have time for that. I need, I need God to do what I need God to do and I need him to do it on my timetable, right? And we miss the blessing of what it is he wants to do because we're unwilling to be obedient. So I, I've got more stories about being disobedient than being obedient, but, but I was remembering that uh, in the first service this morning, I was remembering in 2013, coming out of a very uh, dark season in our life, uh, God called me to plant and pastor a church. I thought he said New York City very clearly. And so I'm, I'm so ready to go. And so I'm like, God, what's my first step? And, and what he clearly told me, I'm driving down 1488 and, 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 and he said, sell your house. I'm like, that's step one for planning a church? Like, how about go to a church planning conference or find a mentor? I mean, anything that would move me toward it. And all he kept saying every time that I prayed, I heard him say, sell your house, sell your house, sell your house, sell your house, just over and over and over again. And I'm, I'm, that just didn't make a lot of sense to me. I called Yvonne and I said, hey, I feel like that God is telling me that step one is sell our house. And she said, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> I'm like, well, Let's just pray about it. And she said, I don't want to pray about it. I don't want to sell our house. And I said, well, I'm not saying I want to sell our house. I feel like that we need to be obedient to it. And after praying about it for a couple of weeks, I came back to her and said, hey, what do you feel like God's telling you? She said, nothing. I haven't prayed about it. She didn't want to sell a house. But here's what she said. She said, Greg, if God's called you to do it, I'll follow you. Just walk in obedience. And that in itself was the voice of God. More on that at another time. All right, so, so here we now, we're gonna walk in obedience and uh, without ever putting it on the market, a buyer came forward, paid full price for our house. We, we were able in 30 days to close it, pay off all of our debt. And this beautiful picture of walking in obedience when it made no sense. Because after we sold our house, we sat in a rental home for six months waiting for whatever was next and God was silent and I was frustrated. I'm like, God, I did the hard thing. Where are you in this? And then in early 2014, Jeff called me and said, hey, we want you to plant a church in Wood Forest. And then y'all know that they call Wood Forest the New York City of Montgomery County, right? (laughs) I didn't know if y'all knew that, but... uh, But I know that it started with a yes. It started with a yes. And, and, and know this, in your life, it starts with yes. That you say, Jesus, this is what I, I feel like you, you, I want you to do in my life. And he says, great. And his way will often be unconventional. It will often not make sense. And the question is, are, are you willing to say yes even when it doesn't make sense? Think about these guys. Lord, save us, 
Heal us. Have mercy on us. Go show yourself to the priest. What? And it says they went and they were cleansed. So here's another thought. Remember, there was no cure for leprosy. In fact, in, in Leviticus 13 and 14, if you want some good reading material, go tonight and read these two chapters and it tells you exactly if you had leprosy, there was uh, in the Mosaic law, they spelled out how to take care of leprosy and how to see it healed. Isn't it interesting that the Mosaic law had two chapters about what to do when someone was healed from leprosy and yet for thousands of years, it never happened. So don't you know that when this happened, the priests are like, oh, what do we, what do, we do here? But so here's what would happen. On the day a leper approached the priesthood and said, I was a leper, but now I've been healed they were to give an initial offering of two birds, okay? Then for, for seven days, they were to investigate the situation to determine three things. First, was this person really a leper? Second, was he really cured of leprosy? And third, what were the circumstances of his healing? If after seven days, the investigation they were convinced of, then on the eighth day, there would be a series of four offerings. First, there was a trespass offering. Second, there was a sin offering. Third, a burnt offering. Fourth, a meal offering. Then came the application of the blood of the trespass offering upon the healed leper, followed by the application of the blood of the sin offering upon the healed leper. The ceremony would then end with the anointing of oil upon the healed leper. What? (laughs) So think about that that this is everything that was supposed to happen if you had been healed from leprosy. And so now these 10 guys show up to the priest and say, I've been healed from leprosy. Not one, but 10. In a day, 10 are healed from leprosy. So it was understood in that time under uh, the rabbis, they would teach that only the Messiah could heal leprosy. So the reason it wasn't being healed was because only the Messiah could heal it. So now 10 guys show up. Guess who healed them from their leprosy? And again, this is the religious power base that is dead set on crucifying Jesus. And so it's almost ironic and Jewish humor that Jesus would heal 10 and they would go blind on paperwork trying to figure out how to do all of this. That Jesus is like, oh, okay, you, you, you don't believe I'm the Messiah? I'm gonna send you 10 healed lepers and make you go through all of that process because I know you're religious and you will follow the letter of the law. And not just do it once, do it 10 times. So he was showing them that he was in, he was the Messiah. But think about it. They could have all missed the blessing. Just imagine if one of them had talked the other nine out of it. If they started walking and stopped and just said, this is ridiculous. Why can't he just heal us? We've heard stories about him, you know, putting, putting mud on blind eyes. People can see, telling people to get off their mats and walk. He could, in a word, heal us. What if they had said no? They would have died in their affliction. 
And yet because of their obedience, they were cleansed. And the priests, they couldn't explain it away. You know, they needed two or three witnesses to verify that it had happened. They had 10. Undeniable that it was the Messiah. Okay, so verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. So post-healing, one of the 10 finds his way back to Jesus. It says, praising him in a loud voice. The Greek there is where we get the word megaphone. So in a loud voice, he is crying out. And it says that he falls at the feet of the Messiah with a thankful and grateful heart. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that you have a debilitating disease? Imagine that you had stage four cancer today and that you were left for dead with only days to live and and Jesus tells you to do something unconventional and just like that, you're healed. Would you fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him? So this should be our response to a work of Jesus in our lives. When Jesus does what only Jesus can do in your life, the only response is to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and worship him with a grateful heart. And so let me say this. I know for some of you, you show up here on a Sunday morning and um, the worship's a little much for you. If you're being honest, you're like, hey, I may get to here with my hands, but that's in a weak moment, right? Um, that that uh, you're like all the people that are singing and man, Samantha gets going up here and she's clapping her hands and whoa! And you're like, oh, what's going on there? And yet you screamed yourself hoarse at the A&M game, right? Outside of these walls, we get excited about a lot of things that matter a whole lot less than the God of the universe. And yet we come in here and we formal it up and and then we live under this whole idea that, well, that's irreverent. David ran through the streets in his underwear. And when his wife reprimanded him, he said, I'll get even more undignified. The worship, your worship should come from a place of deep desperation and deep gratitude. For some of you, man, you'll have to sing as a crying out of surrender saying, listen, Jesus, you are my only hope. For some of you, you will sing in celebration. Thank you, Jesus. But as a follower of Jesus, you know what's not acceptable? To just stand back and watch the show. As far as of Jesus, man, we're called. We're called to actively engage with the God of the universe. In a loud voice, with megaphones, y'all. Try to out-sing the music on stage. And then... Luke makes sure that we know the one who came back was a Samaritan, right? He makes sure that we all know that the hero of this story is not the Jewish religious power base. 
that the hero of the story, um, of course the hero of the story is Jesus, but the one who is exalted here in the moment is a Samaritan, a half-breed. He's the one that comes back. He's the one that bows at the feet of Jesus. Luke wants us to see the bigger picture of the gospel that it is for all. And man, we wanna be the judge and jury for who we feel like is worthy of the gospel, don't we? We have pre-decided who's good and who's not, who's in, who's out. But know this, God is not a Baptist God. He is not a Methodist God. He is not a Nazarene God. He is not an Assemblies of God God. God is a non-denominational God. He comes to everyone who lives with a desperation and that is walking in obedience having a heart of yes. In fact, the traffic patterns of Jesus take him into the dark places, the fringes, to the outcasts, because in Matthew 5, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted over and over again. We see that Jesus is actually for the marginalized, and that's who he's inviting us. He's inviting us into his plan for the world to redeem all people. And know this, there are a lot of broken people in this area. Some of them live in big houses. Some of them live in shanty houses. Some of them live under bridges. But the thing we have in common is we're all broken, y'all. And in need of what only Jesus can provide. And he invites us in his plan to change the world. Verse 17, Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Sheila, I know if you were there, you'd say, yes, no, yes. Again, these are rhetorical questions, right? That he's, he's like, hey, where are the other nine? Didn't I heal 10? Seems like that there are nine that aren't here right now. Where are they? Jesus takes notice so know this, Jesus notices not just the one grateful heart, but all the ones who missed the greater blessing. We're not 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? And then he makes sure he points out, only the foreigner came back to give thanks. An indictment on his own people that my own people reject me. And know this, religion will blind you from Jesus. So let me explain what that means because some of you are like, wait, I thought this was a religious service. Know this, religion is man-made. And so the religion of Christianity is a religion of do's and don'ts. Do these things, don't do these things and everything will be fine. And when we buy into the lie that it's all about do's and don'ts, we miss the essence of the gospel. Because Jesus is not as interested in your actions as he is your heart. That's why he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So based on that, how many adulterers do we have in the room? Uh, All of us, 
You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say, if you've got anger in your heart towards somebody, you've already committed murder. How many murderers in the room? See, for a lot of us, that hurts our sensibilities because we think, well, I haven't done all the bad things. I followed the 10 commandments. I'm a, I'm a good person. And he said, that's not enough. It's not enough. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be acceptable enough. That's why I gave my son, Jesus, And the Jewish people couldn't see it. They needed someone to justify their sin management, to justify their legalistic ways. And Jesus was having nothing of it. And he's like, hey, I healed 10. We're missing 90% of the people. And religion kept the, the nine for embracing Jesus. While the one Samaritan saw something deeper at play, right? His desperation and his grateful heart caused him to come and worship at the feet of Jesus. And so I just want to confess that I see the healing power of God in my life and in our church so much that it's become commonplace. And so often I'll hear a story and I'll be like, that's so good. And then I'll just move on without really being thankful. That I think about, man, God saved my marriage 11 years ago. And and while I am so grateful for that, I, I don't tend to live as if I'm grateful for that every day. God healed one of my daughters who was far from God and now she's following Jesus. And so often I'm immune to that and I just forget to live with a grateful heart. Does anybody else feel like that besides me? That so often I can get to a point where I'm immune from the goodness of God and yet he continues to provide over and over and over again and yet I forget to even raise my hand and wave and say, hey, thanks for letting me in. Thank you. Where are the other nine? And it leads me back to this question. Do you want Jesus or do you only want what Jesus can do for you? I think we want to want Jesus. I don't think there's anybody in here that doesn't want to want Jesus. But for a lot of you this morning, and I'm drifting in and out of this, my want is not enough want. I want to want Jesus, but sometimes I just rather have what I want than Jesus. And the question is, what if Jesus never did another thing for you? It's what he's already done enough. It's a shift in perspective, right? For some of you, you've got some hard things that you're walking through and in your mind, you're like, what? You mean he's done? This is it? Well, what if he wants to use whatever you're going through to bring himself glory? What if the glory were never about you? What What if his ultimate healing is healing your heart and giving you a new perspective in the middle of something hard? It's why he says in James 1, 2, consider it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds for the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must have his perfect work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. What if his goal for you is to live above whatever's going on in your life? For a lot of us, we wanna want Jesus, but at the end of the day, what we really want is what he can do for us. 
He's like, listen, I wanna be enough for you. It's a part of obedience is walking in a love relationship with him, in a desperate love relationship with him, with the confession, yeah, I wanna be healed, but if you never heal me, you're so good. I know you can heal, I know you will heal, but even if you don't, I will follow you. What would that be like in your life? Well, look at verse 19. This is where we close. I don't know how I'm gonna get through the third service. Okay, so then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Okay, so the guy's already well physically. So is he just doubling down on it? Is he just saying, hey, I just wanted to affirm that you're well. I look at you, you no longer have uh, the stuff. You no longer have leprosy. Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Oh, so often Jesus would heal something physical, but he would also heal something spiritual. And the man that came back, he had a a poverty in his spirit, a poverty in his heart, and he came to him and threw himself at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, you rise and go. Your faith has made you well. And you know what? When that guy got up, he walked in a new way. He walked with a new perspective. He walked with new hope. And you gotta believe, we don't know anything about the other nine. I'm sure they appreciated the fact that they could go home to their family. That they appreciated the fact that they were no longer looked at as outcasts. But they missed the opportunity from the ultimate blessing from God. And that is a regenerated heart. Do you know that of all the supernatural things that could happen in your life, the number one most supernatural thing about you is that when you said yes to Jesus, he changed your heart. Doctors can be a part of healing some things in your life. Only Jesus can change your heart. No one else can. You can change your behavior for a season and maybe do a little bit better Your spouse will pat you on the head and say, hey, good job. I see you trying to change. Good for you. But know this, you know what your wife needs from you? She doesn't need for you to change your behavior. She needs you to chase after Jesus because when your heart is changed, you're gonna be a better husband. You're gonna be a better father. Your boss, he doesn't need for you to just work harder. I know that's what you think he wants. What he wants is for you to have an encounter with Jesus because when you have an encounter with Jesus, you are gonna be the ultimate in the workplace. We could go down the list because what you need is not what you think you need. You think you need to do better. And Jesus looks at you and just says, hey, I love you just like you are. I love you just like you are. And I'm inviting you into a transformational relationship that has nothing to do with what you do other than say yes. He said yes to go. He said yes to come back. And he said, your faith has made you well. What would it be like for you to say yes to Jesus today? No matter your circumstance, for some of you, you're, 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 on, you're on a prove it contract, right? God, you prove it, then I'll follow you. You do this for me and then I'll follow you. That's called the prosperity gospel, yes, it is. right? 
God, I'll do this, but then you owe me. Or you do it first and then I'll follow. Know this, he's already done it through the cross. He went first. When you could never be good enough on your best day, he sent his son, Jesus, to live, to die, to get out of that grave, that empty tomb, to ascend, to descend in the form of the Holy Spirit to anybody that says yes. That's your story. He's already done it. Do you want Jesus? Or do you only want what Jesus can do for you? Man, we've, we've baptized just south of 200 people this year. Yeah, it's unbelievable. But, but here's the unbelievable part of it. That means that there are 200 people that have gone into the water, have come up as a sign. They want the world to know that they want to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. Yes. That number, I don't care about the number. I care about the people who have been activated into a kingdom life. That they're like, man, I'm not gonna just manage my sin. I'm gonna go all out. I'm gonna live a life from Jesus. How about you? Your faith has made you well. Okay, so let's land the plane. There are three things that I want you to take with you today as you go. Number one, Jesus loves desperate dependence. He loves desperate dependence. You're not entitled to healing. It's a gift from God. We're called to a life of gratefulness, to a life of thanksgiving. That's what we're called to. And so let me just be very clear. I think for a lot of us, when we think about desperation, desperation is only in bad times, right? Now, this is followers of Jesus. We're called to live lives of desperation, of joyful desperation. Jesus, I need you for my next breath. I think about Psalm 51, 17, when David pens this. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. If you read Psalm 51, man, he is in despair. He is broken. Why? Because he's just committed adultery and been outed. And in the middle of his affliction, he's like a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. He is desperately dependent on the power of God in his life. Number two, the path to healing is obedience. The path to healing is obedience. Again, what Jesus wants ultimately is your yes. And I wish I could stand here today and promise you that if you say yes, that you're 100% gonna be healed. I don't know the mind of God. I don't know why God heals some and not others. It's really not mine to question. What is mine to follow is I need to say yes each and every day. And whatever he asks me to do, I need to walk in joyful obedience. And often, Jesus will take you down the less traveled path to do what only he can do. And so the question is, how far are you willing to go to see healing? Some of you are in a tough spot in your marriage and you've assigned all the blame to your spouse and you said, hey, if he does dot, 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 then I will dot, dot, dot. 
And know this, what Jesus is calling you to is to lay down your life for your spouse, just like Jesus laid down his life for the church. By the way, that's in Ephesians 5. You can look it up. The path to healing is obedience. Number three, that question, do you want Jesus or only what Jesus can do for you? That's a picture of the heart. Again, we can live trying to manage our sin, trying to manage our behavior. It never works out, y'all. So maybe it's time for something different to say, Jesus, I just want you. I just want you because I know if, if you have my heart that whatever happens on the other side is better. Some of you need to believe that this morning, that whatever happens on the other side of your yes is gonna be better than anything you could conjure up on your own. But you'll never know if you don't walk by faith into that obedient life. Even if it seems to be uh, moving counterintuitively to the way that you think it should be. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. It says, for it's a wellspring of life. Everything flows from the heart. When Jesus has your heart, the output of your life changes. And so if you look at your life and you have slapped Christian on, on your identity, but the output of your life is sin, if the output of your life is profanity, if your output of your life is drunkenness, if the output of your life is just you, 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 I don't know what you've given your life to, but it's not Jesus. Because when Jesus has your heart, he says everything flows out of that. And so it's a call to reevaluate, what am I really giving my life to? Do you want to be the one or the nine? And you get to choose. 